Hi, I'm Tim Snyder. This is the third of these talks. The idea is that I'm going to speak about things that are on my mind, maybe things that I'm thinking about but haven't written about yet. And the way, the way I'm going to do it is just pick a single topic for each one. And now that I've done a couple, I'm starting to hear from some of you in real life over email what you would like to hear about. And one of the requests was oligarchy. Oligarchy. What is it? Is it a thing? Should we worry about it? It's a thing and we should worry about it. I'm going to spend a few minutes talking about where it came from, what it is, and at the very end what we might do about it. So what is oligarchy? What does the word mean? It's a, it's a Greek word. It means the rule of the few. And, and just the very fact that it's a Greek word, an ancient Greek word, is a useful signal of something. And, and it's a signal of how politics is full of all kinds of possibilities. The Greeks knew that all kinds of things could happen. They had the word democracy. That's where we get the word democracy. But they also had tyranny and oligarchy and plutocracy and kleptocracy, all of, the, all of these other variants. So the first thing that we should register when we think of oligarchy is that oligarchy is one of the many things that can happen in politics. We tend to think we're democracy, democracy is us. But that's not the way history works. History, history is variety and democracy is very difficult, in fact. And, and one of the things that can happen to a democracy is oligarchy. Okay, so what, what is oligarchy? First thing to notice from the Greek tradition is that oligarchy is set up in opposition to democracy from the very, very beginning. What do I mean by the beginning? By the beginning, I mean from the very beginning of history, from the very first history book. In the first history book, which is the Peloponnesian Wars by Thucydides, you have an opposition of democracy, which is Athens, and oligarchy, which is Sparta. So this, this is a clue. Democracy and oligarchy are at war. This is our very first history book. This is quite literally the beginning of, of our history. A bit later, Aristotle comes onto the scene and he says oligarchy is not just rule by the few, which is its literal meaning in Greek. It's rule by the rich few, by the wealthy few. The few who are, who are in charge tend also to be the wealthiest people, which is a very important modification. Now, I mentioned earlier kleptocracy and plutocracy. These are kindred ideas. Kleptocracy means rule by thieves, also a very useful word. Plutocracy means rule by the wealthy, also very useful. We're going to stay with oligarchy. So Aristotle says oligarchy is rule by the wealthy few. And then Plato says, in Book 8 of the Republic, Plato says there's a danger in democracy. And the danger in democracy is that someone will come along, probably somebody with a lot of money, and will tell people what they want to hear and democracy will break down. So if we put Plato and Aristotle together for a minute, we get a classical argument about the relationship between democracy and oligarchy, which is that democracy has the weakness that it's vulnerable to oligarchy. This is what this is what the, the classic philosophers were worried about. And for this reason, by the way, the founding fathers were worried about it as well. So two things to note from the classics, democracy and oligarchy in opposition, but democracy can blend into oligarchy. And this is the reason why it's useful to have these words, because let's say, let's just say, I'll come back around to this, there's some chance that oligarchy is in our present or in our future. 
we need the word, we need the concept so that we can recognize it, so that we can see it coming. Okay, that brings me to the next thing that I wanted to say. Where has oligarchy come? Is oligarchy around in the modern world? Yeah, obviously it is. The reason why we use the word oligarchy now is that the thing, and therefore the word, appeared in the 1990s in Russia. The Greek word oligarchy jumped a couple of thousand years to Russia and appears in the 1990s. Why is that? Well, it has to do with the end of the Soviet Union. In the Soviet Union, there was central planning. There were relatively few assets. They were highly centralized. And the Soviet Union was also a state, like Russia is today, which was highly dependent on commodity exports, on the export of natural gas and of oil. When the Soviet Union falls apart, an attempt is made to privatize, to create a market economy, without first establishing a firm and well-understood rule of law. This led to a situation where all the best assets were taken by a small number of people and other very clever people thought of arbitrage schemes with natural gas which allowed them to make lots of money. So by the end of the 1990s people in Russia were describing their own situation not as democracy, although there were elections, but as oligarchy. And the few people who were around the president of Russia, a man named Boris Yeltsin, were called the oligarchs. Russians also refer to them as his, his family. So the word oligarchy comes to us with the thing oligarchy from Russia in the 1990s. What, what Mr. Putin does, what Vladimir Putin does, is he says, since we're in an oligarchy, I'm going to fix the problem. I'm going to, I'm going to restore the state to the citizens. But what Mr. Putin actually does in a very clever sleight of hand is that he takes the oligarchy that he inherits from Mr. Yeltsin and he chooses his own pet oligarchs. He merges some of the oligarchs with the state and in fact turns the state into one giant unified and much more stable oligarchy. So again, some people prefer to refer to Mr. Putin's regime as kleptocracy ruled by thieves. I'm fine with that. Some people might say plutocracy, ruled by the very wealthy, because they are very wealthy. But I prefer to stay with the term oligarchy here. Now, we can learn some things from Russia, because things that happen here often happen first in Russia. So what can we learn from oligarchy in Russia? One of the things we can learn is that it has a fundamental problem of rule, which I would refer to as oligarchical impotence. Oligarchical impotence has two problems. The first problem, and maybe the most basic, is that there isn't a succession principle. A succession principle is how one leader gives way to another leader. And this is extremely important. If you want your country to exist, if you want your government to exist, you have to have some idea how you go from one leader to the next leader. And this, by the way, is one of the reasons why democracy is actually such a wonderful thing to have, because democracy, in the sense of regular elections, it just settles this question. You don't have to think about it. The country's going to exist. The state is going to exist because we're going to go to the next election. Oligarchy, note, has no such succession principle. Rule by the few or rule by the rich few doesn't answer the question of what comes next. It's not like a monarchy where you can just say, well, my son is going to rule or my daughter is going to rule. Oligarchs will set up their sons and daughters. They will puff up their sons and daughters. They will give them lots of money, but there's no principle which says that these people ought to be the next ruler. So that's a problem. The second part of oligarchical impotence is that it's very difficult to make policy. So if you're a conservative and you like markets, 
and you're right, markets are good things. If you're conservative and you like markets, then you'll notice this problem. It's very hard for oligarchs to make markets because oligarchs can't really accept the rule of law. For a market to work well for everybody, for people to be able to rise up and create small businesses or medium-sized businesses, you have to have the rule of law working for everybody fairly. What will happen in an oligarchy is that you will have people who are above the law, the oligarchs, their friends, their families, their business associates, and those people will be able to block the rule of law and therefore block prosperity and social advancement for everybody else, right? So markets will not work under oligarchy. There'll be no social advancement for that reason. The other way it's hard for oligarchs to make policy is it's very hard for oligarchs to redistribute. Oligarchs might talk about how they care about the entire country, all the population, the poor, etc. But because they are the rich and their friends are the rich um, and they, they come to power representing the rich, it's not impossible, but it's very unlikely that they will make policies that redistribute wealth in a significant way. And without that, you don't have the infrastructure, you don't have the health care, you don't have the education, you don't have the things that the state can do that help people advance socially and have better lives. Okay, so this brings us to the United States in the 2010s. America kicks off the 2010s with a very important Supreme Court ruling which is called Citizens United. Now what Citizens United is, is the Supreme Court of the United States saying we will now ignore everything that we have learned from classical history and from contemporary life and do what we can to make the United States more like an oligarchy. What do I mean? Well, in Citizens United, um, would-be American oligarchs came to the Supreme Court and said, look, we have lots of money and we would, like to, we would like to use this money to change the United States into something more like an oligarchy. Nobody is using the word, but that's basically the idea. We have unlimited money, we corporations, we would like to use this money to influence the population in ways that suits us. We as corporations would like to have that right. So in Citizens United, the Supreme Court uh, ruled that corporations were people for this purpose and ruled that money was a form of, of free, spe free speech. This is, this is the kind of thing which classical philosophers were afraid would happen. And one of the things which is a bit sad about the Supreme Court ruling is that it pays so little attention to what everyone should know about the history of, of democracy. One would expect in the Supreme Court that these would be exactly the kinds of people who would be paying long attention to the problems of democracy, the difficulties of democracy, and not just making rulings which make democracy harder. Likewise, Citizens United ignores, in 2010, ignores exactly what's happening in Russia. Russia and Ukraine, other countries, gave contemporary evidence about what happens when wealth gets too concentrated and a few people are in effect controlling everything. You can have regular elections, as Russia does, but those elections will be ever less democratic. Which brings us to the United States. Is the United States an oligarchy today, 2017? Is Donald Trump an, an oligarch? Well, the United States is tottering between, I would say, democracy and oligarchy. Our elections still matter. I think we're actually in that moment where they matter more than ever because the rules of the game are at stake. And one of the rules of the game is whether we actually are a democracy or whether we will become an oligarchy. So please vote. On the other hand, the extreme concentration of wealth in the United States, 
which is coming to resemble the extreme concentration of wealth in Russia, means that a relatively small number of people and families, a few hundred families, unfortunately, can donate money and direct money, which determines who runs for office. We also have the problem that thanks to Citizens United, corporations or fronts for corporations can intervene in state elections all over the land and, and get their influence felt that way. So we are, we are teetering. We are teetering. So what we do right now makes an awful lot of difference. Is Donald Trump an oligarch? This is tricky because as far as we know, and again, I'd be very happy to revise this opinion if we see Mr. Trump's tax returns, but as far as we know, he doesn't actually have any money, right? Um, so in that sense, he's not an oligarch. That is in the Aristotelian sense, because as far as we know, he doesn't actually have any money. He didn't achieve, he didn't achieve power by, by having money. Insofar as he has money, this seems to be because um, ever less mysterious Russian investors helped him out over the course of the last 15 years or so, which would make him not a traditional oligarch, but some kind of transnational creation. Um, I think the best way to think about Mr. Trump is that he is someone who wants to be an oligarch, or perhaps more specifically, someone who wants to be a Russian oligarch. The way that he behaves is very much the way that second tier or rather third tier Russian oligarchs behave. They, they look upward towards Mr. Putin and try to guess what Mr. Putin is going to want and they say those things in advance. However, with Mr. Trump, we do get the problem of oligarchical impotence. We have the problem that Mr. Trump is pressing up against democracy as a succession principle. Um, his idea of, of a federal commission to suppress votes all around the country pushes us away from democracy as a succession principle, which would be a very bad thing for a number of reasons. The second way that we see oligarchical impotence in the United States now is that there is no policy. There is no policy. We cannot expect policy from a would-be oligarch, from a wannabe oligarch, that will benefit the population as a whole. I feel very comfortable predicting that so long as there, Mr. Trump is in office and he has a majority in both houses of the legislature, there isn't going to be policy that benefits the citizens as a whole. There will be attempts at tax cuts for the rich. There will be attempts at taking away things like health care from everyone else. But there will not be, because there cannot be, um, in the condition of oligarchy or wannabe oligarchy, which is where we are now, there cannot be policies that help that help people as a whole. It's, it's extremely unlikely. So that's where we are. So you might be thinking then, all right, if we are in this condition of possible oligarchy, wannabe oligarchy, if we're tilting towards oligarchy, what does government actually do? Um, Mr. Trump, after all, does act day to day, week to week, month to month. He does stand up and perform. What's actually happening with our government? And the answer is that in conditions of oligarchical impotence, um, you shift the task of government from doing anything to uh, affirming identity. Government's no longer about doing, government is about being, which means that you talk all the time about who you are and who's good and who's bad and who's the enemy and, 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 who's, and who's the friend. And insofar as you make policy, and this is what I'm going to talk about next time, insofar as you make policy, there will be a, a clear tendency to make policy which actually hurts rather than helps your own followers. What you end up doing as an oligarch is deliberately hurting your own followers and asking them to applaud you. Um, Mr. Trump is often called a populist. I don't think that's quite right. I think the thing at stake is more like sado-populism. 
um, and what sadopopulism means and how you can government how you can govern by distracting and by causing pain that's I think what I'm going to talk about next time um, for now thanks a lot for for listening it makes a great difference to me and I look forward to hearing from you thanks